The church has never seen a more difficult day. To be sure, difficulties have arisen through the years and the church has certainly weathered many storms. What is happening now is by far the most difficult season and circumstance that God's people have had to walk through. And isn't that just like hell? That as time marches forward, the enemy of our soul seeks to ratchet up the pressure, to turn up the heat, and to wear out the saints of the Most High. The devil does what he can to come against the church with great wrath, for he knows that he has but a short time. Yes, there has been persecution in the past, but it seems to be reaching a new level. Yes, false teaching and immorality has reared its ugly head in the past, but in increasing insistence, it exerts itself against the people of God. Yes, there have been tyrants and despots in the past that have opposed the people of God, but there seems to be an intensification of cruelty and malice toward believers. The church has never seen a more difficult day. It's not that adversity was foreign to the church. It's actually a recurring element throughout the book of Acts. Peter and John, they, they were arrested at one point and they were imprisoned before preaching uh, in the name of Jesus in Acts chapter 4. Shortly thereafter, all of the apostles are jailed and despite a miraculous deliverance by an angel, they are beaten, they are flogged for obeying God rather than the religious establishment. Stephen would be arrested and he would be stoned to death, becoming the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And this, as many would know, ushered in a great wave of persecution, scattering the Jerusalem church throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. And in the midst of this persecution, a man named Saul of Tarsus is at the forefront, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. So yes, the church has seen trouble and overcome it in the past, but they've never seen what is about to happen next. They barely get beyond the persecution of Saul when one of the greatest setbacks imaginable befalls the church. And this is the setting that we find as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 12. When a wicked tyrant named Herod Agrippa stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Now the Herods, they had never really been friendly to God's people. That's an understatement. It was the grandfather of Herod Agrippa, known as Herod the Great. He was responsible for murdering all of Bethlehem's baby boys. And then Herod Antipas in the next generation was the one involved in Jesus' trial and John the Baptist's beheading. So it's, it goes without saying, perhaps, that the church knew that Herod Agrippa was not on their side, but they never thought that he would go this far. For in Acts 12, verse 2, the Bible says that he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The church had walked through some difficult moments over the past decade or more, but for the first time they watch as one of their leaders is taken from them. James, the brother of John, one of the brothers whom Jesus called the sons of thunder, the two sons of Zebedee, James. 
He was among the twelve who had walked with Jesus during His earthly ministry. He had been stationed in Jerusalem with the other apostles, offering a steady hand of leadership during those early years of the church. But now, the church watches as the first of the apostles now is martyred for the cause of the gospel. And to add insult to injury, as if this was not difficult enough, Herod throws Peter in prison with intentions to take his life also in just a few short days. It's a one-two punch in the gut that nobody wanted to experience. Seeing James taken, that's difficult enough. But now it looks as though Peter, the Pentecost preacher, the one to whom Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, that he will face the same end should Herod have his way. The church has never seen a more difficult day. But to, to the credit of those first century believers, in the face of overwhelming adversity, instead of collapsing on the floor and throwing their hands up and hanging their head in defeat, the Bible says, Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. I've come to tell you tonight, yes, they probably felt a little helpless and they weren't sure how things were going to turn out. So they did the only thing that they knew to do and the church went to prayer for Peter and they just wouldn't let up. And I've come to preach to somebody tonight that prayer is the turning point in your story. That prayer is the pivotal moment in your difficult season when God turns the tables on hell and gives the church a victory. Everybody shout it, but prayer was made. As you look back over your life, there are no doubt moments that you can point to in which God ministered and God moved mightily. When in the face of great uncertainty and calamity, God stepped in and made a way in the midst of impossibility. Come on, somebody knows what I'm talking about, that when the bills were low, bills were high, and the funds were low, that God stepped in and provided right in the proper moment. How many times have we heard somebody testify that God sent just the right amount at just the right time down to the dollar? That's the testimony of some under the sound of my voice today. For others, when the diagnosis and the prognosis looked bleak, but God brought healing into your body and blessed you with health and length of days and prolonged life. Is that the testimony of anybody here today? That God stepped in and God did a miracle when it seemed as though your loved one would never come back to God. But then there was that Sunday when they walked through the back doors of the church and they came to an altar and they raised their hands and they prayed through again. Come on, these are the moments that we cherish, that we celebrate. They're the moments that we tell our children about. They're the moments that we reminisce upon as we testify of God's goodness and His power in our lives. 
They're the moments, the pillars upon which our faith is built and has grown through the years. And as we reflect upon them, they give us the ability to trust God again in the face of whatever might come our way. For He is Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if He ever provided, then He's still a provider. And if He's ever healed, then He's still a healer. And if He ever has delivered you from oppression or from sickness or from whatever, then He is still a deliverer today. I wish I had a witness in the house tonight that would say He's, doing, he's done it for me and He can still do it today. He is faithful Truly, God has been faithful to us. I know that that is the testimony of many in the congregation tonight. That you've weathered many storms, but you've found God to be faithful. You've walked through dark days and deep valleys, but God has been with you and has seen you through. You've faced impossibility, but God turned it around and made a way. This was certainly the testimony of the prophet Jeremiah during the most difficult season of his life. God's people, they're being taken into captivity. And Jeremiah is weeping as his beloved city, Jerusalem, and the temple therein, they are being burned to the ground at the hands of wicked men. But even in the middle of the worst day of his life, while documenting his sorrow in a book we now call Lamentations, the prophet just couldn't help. Something welling up on the inside of him. He couldn't help but say in Lamentations 3.22 that it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. We ought to be dead and gone. It's only of the Lord's mercies and His compassions that we're not out of here. That there's still a remnant left. That's the mercy and that's the compassion of God. He said they're new every morning. And he just couldn't help himself but declare even in the midst of the worst day of his life, all right, okay, okay God, great is thy faithfulness. And every once in a while, we need to remind ourselves we are only here by the grace, the mercy, and the power of God. And I'm persuaded that it's not only the miracles that I can see and that I can perceive, but I believe that many times God's unseen hand has kept me even when I was unaware. And only in eternity will we truly know all the ways that God has kept us, all the ways that God has been faithful. Yes, God, I thank you for all the trouble that you turned around in my life and all the testimonies that have come as a result of it. But I also thank you, God, for all the things that could have been, but you prevented. The, the, the lost loved one that was so far from God at that particular moment, in that particular season, and they should have overdosed. Their life should have been lost and forfeit. They shouldn't be with us anymore. But your hand stepped in and held on to them and kept them even in uncertain times. It's the accident that could have been, but wasn't. That's the faithfulness of God. In the Old Testament, God commanded His people 
to hold various feasts each year in order to commemorate all of the things that God had done. There's the Feast of Passover, which commemorates how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. There's the Feast of Pentecost. We're familiar with that one. But in the Old Testament, it commemorates when God gave His people the law. It also commences the harvest season, and so it's a time of celebration, thanking God for His bountiful blessings. Then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorates God keeping and sustaining His people as they wandered through the wilderness before entering the promised land. But there is another feast that the Jews would later celebrate. And it wasn't one that God mandated for them to celebrate, but rather one that the Israelites would implement themselves. It was called the Feast of Purim. And this feast wasn't one that commemorated what God had done, but rather it commemorated what God didn't allow to happen. And you read about it in the book of Esther, how an evil man named Haman hatched a diabolical plot to exterminate the Jews on a particular day in the Jewish calendar, the 13th of Adar. On our calendar, the 13th of Adar was this past Wednesday. It was March the 16th. And so even to this day, the Jewish people, they on the evening of Purim, on March 16th, they'll com commence the feast, and it goes until the following evening. It's about 24 hours over two days. It's the Feast of Purim. Now Haman determined the date by ex of execution by casting lots, and these lots were called Purim. But we know the story how God divinely orchestrated a series of events that caused Haman's plot to backfire and gave God's people even more favor with the Persian king. And so from that day forward, the Jews have celebrated a feast that they call Purim. Every other feast, it celebrates what did happen. How God delivered. How God sustained and how God provided. But Purim is the only feast that celebrates what didn't happen. It was a feast celebrating what could have been, but God stepped in and He blocked it and He turned it and worked it for good. I think it's amazing that God did not command this feast. It wasn't mandated by God, but the people just had such a heart of gratitude and they wanted to be sure that God knew how thankful they were. Thank you, God, for what could have been in my life, but you stopped it. Thank you, God, that when the devil tried to take me out, you said no. Hell wanted to have me, but you said, devil, no further. This one's mine. This is my child. This is my son, my daughter. Tonight, I, I wasn't sure if I ought to share it, but I just need to testify of how God has ministered in my life and in my family. It was four years ago this past week, March the 18th, 2018. It just so happened to be a Sunday morning. And uh, our da oldest daughter, Rosie, two years old at the time, had been sick. But in particular, those early morning hours on that Sunday were rough. She had a sky-high fever that refused to break. Her body was swelling even to the point where she couldn't walk because her feet were so inflamed. And what looked like bruising was breaking out all over her body and we didn't know why. And so my wife, Trish, took her to the hospital that Sunday morning. I followed shortly thereafter. And the ER doctor looked at my wife and said, I'm not sure what's going on, but it's not normal. And as you can imagine, 
Those are not the words that you want to hear when you have your two-year-old child in the ER. We don't know what's going on. And you're saying you don't know either. But we called upon the church. And the church went to pray. As many connections as we had, we asked for them to lift little Rosalie to the Lord. And this church, among others, they prayed. And I've come to testify that the very next morning, all of Sunday it was uncertain. All of Sunday it just seemed like it was not improving whatsoever. But the very next morning, the pediatrician who had been caring for us was shocked to see the progress saying in, in their words that she is a completely different child. Now, they kept us through Monday just to make sure, but then they discharged us on Tuesday, and that photo on the right was taken on Wednesday morning. We went from great uncertainty, no idea what's going on, bruising all over the body, swelling to where she couldn't even walk, and on Wednesday morning, she's playing like her good old sweet self, like nothing had ever happened. I've come to testify that God is still a healer. Come on, does anybody still get excited that we serve a God that can step in in uncertainty and turn it around? Oh, praise Him for a moment. Praise Him for a moment. Peter had known God to be a deliverer. And I wonder if Peter was remembering that dark night in Herod's prison cell when he wrote these words some 20 years later, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. And he's quoting the psalmist. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and the Lord's ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I imagine that Peter wouldn't have been able to pen those words without thinking back to the many myriad times that God had intervened in his life and in impossible circumstances. But I imagine, perhaps even more sp specifically, that Peter's mind went to that night when he was put in jail by an evil man with intentions to kill him in a few short days. Now, here we sit tonight, and we know that that did not happen. We know that the church went to prayer for Peter. And we know that Peter would ultimately be delivered from the prison cell by an angel of God. And we know that Herod would not have the chance to take his life. And so because of this hindsight, we can look at Peter's words from 20 years later and we can understand truly the eyes of the Lord were upon Peter as he sat under the guard of 16 Roman soldiers, no less. Truly, the Lord's ears were open as prayer was made without ceasing by the church. And truly, the Lord's face was against Herod when shortly thereafter, an angel again struck him with a sickness and his body was consumed with worms and he died. That's the testimony of the faithfulness of God. In the middle of the story, when you, when you open to Acts chapter 12, it seems that Herod is in control. 
But before this very chapter is over, his life will be lost. That's how quick God can turn it around. Herod intended to take Peter's life, but God, before this chapter is through, is going to take what the enemy meant to do against Peter and turn it back against Herod, and his life will be lost and Peter's life spared. And that's powerful. But Peter doesn't know that yet. And furthermore, the church doesn't know that yet. Because now, right now, Peter is still in chains. Perhaps in the very same cell that James had been taken. Here we sit on the other side of the miracle and it's really easy to be all pious and, you know, so full of faith and all that, all that stuff. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know how the story ends. But Peter doesn't know. And the church doesn't know. And it's really easy to declare that God is a deliverer when you're on the other side of the answer, able to read the story from, from the beginning through to the end. But it's more challenging to believe that God is able when Peter is bound under the watch of squads of soldiers on rotating shifts. It's hard to believe that God is in control when the clock is ticking as the days of Passover are quickly coming to an end. It's difficult to believe that God is going to deliver Peter in light of the fact that James has just lost his life at the hands of the same evil man. When you're still making funeral arrangements for James, it's hard to believe for Peter's miracle. We have this tendency as humans to filter our actions today through yesterday's experiences. And, and this, at times, is a helpful practice. When you burn your hand on the stove, you're more careful next time. And this is good. A few speeding tickets accompanied by a, cup, a couple hefty fines, they tend to cause you to slow down a little bit while you're driving. A few splinters in your fingers and some debris in your eyes on the job site make you look for the gloves and the glasses the next time. So this is a good thing. Yesterday's experiences influencing today's actions, but it can also be unhealthy and detrimental. Like when somebody hurts you, a relationship, a partnership, they burn you, and because of the hurt, you build up emotional walls, and you keep people out, and you isolate yourself. Yesterday's events and experiences impacting today's actions. You try to launch some new initiative in your life or some ministry in your church and it doesn't go how you had hoped it would. Because of this, you stop dreaming. And you hesitate the next time that God prompts you. You prayed that God would heal. You prayed that God would provide for you and bring deliverance. But He didn't come through the way you wanted Him to. So the next time a need arises, what do we sometimes do? We don't pray as fervently. When another sickness comes to our attention, we don't intercede the way we used to. And I've just come to help us tonight and let us know that we ought to be, we have to be very careful not to allow past experiences or the unanswered prayers from yesterday render us inactive. We have to be very careful because that is a spirit of fear. It's a spirit that filters every thought through the lens of our disappointments. What if they don't get healed this time? 
I've seen it happen that way before. What if they don't respond well? What if they reject my witness? It's fear. And it paralyzes us. And it quenches our faith. When we filter all of our actions today through the experiences of yesterday. I have found that sometimes fear will even mask itself as the voice of reason. The voice that tells you to play it safe. It's the voice that tells you that God probably won't respond to your prayer because He didn't seem to the last time. But God, today, in spite of yesterday, calls us and beckons us to take another step of faith. God calls us in the midst of whatever adversity we face today to pray again. To pick up the mantle of that burden for that need, for that loved one, for that sickness, for that one distant from God. Take it upon ourselves again and begin to fast and to begin to intercede. To go and be a witness. To go and be a light again. To trust God again. Today, despite yesterday. Pray for Peter, despite James. You see, what makes Acts 12 powerful is not just the fact that the church prayed. We shout about that, and that's, that's fine. That's wonderful. But what makes Acts 12 all the more powerful to me is that they prayed on the heels of an unanswered prayer. That the church prayed for Peter even though James had just been killed. They prayed in the face of deep disappointment and severe setback. But here's what made the church in Acts chapter 12 and in the book of Acts generally so powerful that despite what happened yesterday, they prayed again. But prayer was made of the church unto God for Peter. Prayer was made by the church. That's what makes it powerful. In His sovereignty, God chose not to deliver James. But that didn't deter the church from praying for Peter in the prison cell. What I feel in this service tonight is that God would challenge you to pray again. That God would challenge you despite what has happened in your life, despite how many times... You've watched and it's looked as if God did not answer the request, at least, not, at least not the way that we thought that He should. We prayed for healing and they didn't get it on this side of eternity. We prayed for deliverance and they're still out there in the world somewhere. But pray again. But prayer was made. There is something about a church that refuses to quit praying. There is something about a saint of God, a father or a mother in the kingdom of God that refuses to quit praying. In the face of disappointment, we pray. On the heels of God not giving us the answer we wanted to see, we pray. When on the surface it seems like the enemy has the upper hand, we trust God and we pray. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church. This is the biblical pattern for prayer and petition before God. In the Gospels, there is a Gentile woman 
who had a daughter grievously vexed with the devil, the Bible says. And this woman didn't have much going for her. She was not of Jewish descent, which means that she was not entitled to the promises of Jehovah. But one thing she was, was persistent. And the Bible tells us that she cried out for mercy and Jesus, he responded with silence. This is, this is not, you know, when Jesus, uh, you know, in his word, when we are reading stories like this, this is not what we want to see. That she comes to God and she's saying, deliver my daughter. And, and, and Jesus is silent upon her first request. But she didn't stop. The Bible says that she continued crying out to him. And Jesus responds now essentially by saying, it's not yet time for me to minister to the Gentiles. But in persistence, she said, Lord, all I need is just a crumb from the master's table. And if I can have just a crumb of your power, I know that's enough for my daughter to be delivered. And because of her faith, and more importantly, because of her persistence, Jesus said, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Come on, that's how prayer ought to be. But prayer was made with out ceasing. You pray once and it feels like God is silent. It feels like the heavens are brass. So you pray again. And you don't get the answer that you wanted, but you go to prayer again. And then suddenly God, He steps in and He gives the miracle. And He gives an answer what you've been bringing to Him. That's how fast God can turn it around and work it for good. Everyone shout, but prayer was made. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus told the parable of the man who went to his friend's house and just wouldn't stop knocking on the door. He needed some bread, but the friend said, trouble me not. Now this is not me defining God or how Jesus interacts with us through prayer. This is Jesus defining things for us. And he says that the first response of the man inside the house, the one that has the provision, the one that has the answer, the first the, the first words out of his mouth are, trouble me not. That's not what we want to hear. But that's what Jesus tells us. The door is shut, and I cannot rise and give thee. And Jesus said that though the man wouldn't give bread merely on the basis of their friendship. See, we're people of God. We used to sing the song, I am a friend of God. And we're in covenant through baptism with Jesus and so we have a relationship with the Lord. However, Jesus said, based on the relationship alone, that wasn't enough to see the need provided for. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11? That He wouldn't give bread based merely on their friendship, but He would, however, give bread because of the incessant knocking on His door. And Jesus said it was because of His importunity, His insistence, His incessance. And, and we get the, the famous, powerful statement from Jesus. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and just keep knocking and just keep knocking and it shall be opened unto you. Everyone shout, but prayer was made. But prayer was made without Ceasing. Music, join me. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus starts another parable by saying that men ought always to pray and not faint. 
before he even gets into the story, this is the precursor. People of God, you ought always to pray and not faint. It's the parable in Luke 18 of the widow and the unjust judge. Again, giving us a glimpse into our relationship with God through the avenue of prayer. And in this parable, we read how the the widow and her persistent cry to this unjust judge was, avenge me of mine adversary. We We don't know how long it went on. We don't know how many times she petitioned this judge. But here's what we do know from verse 4. And he would not for a while. Again, this is Jesus defining the terms of engagement of prayer. It starts with this unjust judge not giving an answer for a while. I don't know why God does that. I don't understand his ways. They're above my ways, his thoughts above our thoughts. But afterward, he said within himself, though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me. We think we we ought not to trouble God. But Jesus said in the parable, the answer was given because that widow just would not let up. And the judge said, because of that, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then Jesus said in verse 6, hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect? Won't God give you the answer you've been praying for? Those which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them. It seems like He's not listening. It seems like He's not answering. It seems like that door is still closed. It seems like there's still silence on the part of heaven. But Jesus said, despite that, I will avenge them speedily. You see, it's kind of like this buildup. We pray, we pray, we pray. doesn't seem like much is happening. So we pray, we pray, we pray. We trust, we pray. And it doesn't seem like much is happening. But we pray, we pray. We keep going to prayer. We keep bringing it to God. Our needs, our petitions, our families. And Jesus said, all of a sudden, God will avenge speedily. God can do a work in a need that maybe you've been praying about for decades. God can turn it around in an instant. God can melt the heart of stone in an instant. God can take every cancerous cell out of a body in an instant. God can do that kind of work. But Jesus said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. When Jesus is getting ready to do a work like that, will he find somebody that's been praying, slogging it out in the trenches of intercession, believing God despite the fact they haven't seen anything yet? But if he does, he will avenge speedily. Jesus responds to the prayer of his people that just won't Stop. I don't know why. I I don't believe that it's a divine reluctance. I believe that it is God trying to do a work in us in the process of prayer probably as much as anything. 
And God in his sovereign timing knows just the right moment to bring the miracle. Because we know from the story of the prodigal son that you can get an inheritance too soon and it will mess you up. So God knows the right moment. God knows the perfect time. He is sovereign. And so when I don't see him working, I trust him. When I can't see his hand at work, I trust his heart and I pray. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church. And I close with this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is writing about the coming of the Lord. You can read the chapter yourself at a later date, later time. But, but in summary, he starts talking about the end times and how they will be marked by sudden destruction. And he compares those days at the end of time to the travail of a woman with child. And he says that there will be no escaping it. And so he challenges the church in light of this to be alert and to be aware of the times and the seasons preceding the coming of the Lord. They will be difficult days, to be sure. There will be chaos and destruction. And it will be easy to get distracted by current events and by the news. And so he tells us to be sober-minded, to remain focused. But he closes this letter and specifically this chapter, different than how he ends most of his other letters. He closes it with almost a list of commands. These short, staccato, two or three word statements, commands given to the church. And among them is the command, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Paul knew that there would be a temptation to silence our prayers. Hear me tonight. As difficulty and chaos would begin to swirl around us. I believe Paul knew that the pressure of the end times would wear some of us out. He knew that adversity and trouble would cause some to lay down their prayer life. He knew that disappointments and setbacks would cause some to stop interceding for the next need. So in light of this, Paul urges the church and he thunders the command to pray without ceasing. To not stay held bound in your circumstance or not be overwhelmed by your dilemma, but to rise again, to brush yourself off and go to prayer. To go to prayer the next day and to go to prayer the day after that and just believe that God is in control. Pray without ceasing. I wish you'd shout it. Pray without ceasing. I wish you'd shout it, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God. Because that is how God works. It's through unrelenting, incessant, unstopping prayer. Stand together with me. Make no mistake about it. The turning point in Acts chapter 12 are those words right there. Prayer was the turning point for Peter. It wasn't just a one-time momentary prayer. It was an incessant, unrelenting, praying church that was the pivotal moment in Peter's deliverance. And I just want to tell you again tonight that I believe and I declare that prayer is the turning point in your story. 
prayer is the turning point when the tables will turn in your life, in your circumstance, in your need. It comes through prayer. So church, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I know we've experienced setbacks, but pray. Look at your neighbor and say, pray. Yes, James may have just been killed, but prayer was made. Yes, Peter is under the guard of 16 soldiers, but prayer was made. Yes, it seemed like Herod had the upper hand, but prayer was made. Yes, we've seen some bad days, as many as good it seems, but prayer was made. Yes, our loved ones are as far away from God as they've ever been, but prayer was made. Yes, the diagnosis is not favorable, but prayer was made. Yes, society seems to be growing increasingly hostile toward the church. But prayer was made. And can I tell you that prayer makes the difference. But prayer was made. And prayer made the difference. It made the difference for Peter. And it can make the difference for you. So tonight, I know that there's so many needs represented in this house. Some very urgent. Some that have been lingering for years. But God would challenge you to pick up that need again. And to believe Him for an answer again. Maybe your prayers have gone dormant in light of yesterday's setbacks, but pray again. I wonder if there's anybody that has a need in your life that one more time you want to petition the throne of God's grace if you would step toward this altar and say, God, I, I still have a need. God, I have a circumstance. I've been believing you for it. I've been praying about it for many years. Maybe I've kind of gotten a little bit weary, but I'm going to pick it up again, God. And I'm going to pray over it again, God. I'm going to believe you for an answer again. Shall the Lord find faith like that in the earth? The faith to pick up the need day after day and pray and seek and push. And if He finds faith like that, the Lord shall avenge them speedily. If you believe that right now, I wish you would just lift your voices like a trumpet into the air, just as a sign of faith before God and in the face of hell. I'm believing for a miracle. I'm believing for the supernatural touch of God in my family. intercessor go ahead and intercede for that need again pray again
Come on, church, lift your voice in prayer right now. All across this sanctuary, I know that there's needs up front. I know there's needs in the house tonight, front to back. So can you just pray? Can you just lean into what God is speaking, what God is calling us to? And you may not have a need in your story, in your circumstance, but there's needs in this church. God is calling you to bear one another's burdens through prayer. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. 